Welcome to Unchanging Education with Dan Clemens. Before I get into them, uh, as described in the topic in the description, one loose end I want to tie up that I originally had in, in my previous season notes, but didn't quite seem to fit, and it might even fit better later on still, but I think it makes sense uh, to just include it now as a loose end. So there's a book by Davidson called Philosophies Men Live By, 1974. And uh, I love this quote right out, right from the beginning of the text. To know the chief rival attitudes toward life as the history of human thinking has developed them. And to have heard some of the reasons they give for themselves ought to be considered an essential part of liberal education. Who can decide offhand which is absolutely better, to live or to understand life? We must do both alternatively. To be limited only to living and not toward understanding emerges as a kind of crisis. Teaching students how they ought to live, for example, as change agents or something like activistic warriors and specifically deployed towards you know one particular cause at an age before they can reasonably be expected nor have they been exposed to these chief rival attitudes and not just the chief rival attitudes themselves but also the reasons they give for themselves so this is not, it's not an education at all to point malleable or plastic young people in any particular direction. So this is what, this is a nice example of what causes many people to suggest that this is not education but indoctrination, or put it another way, it's not education, it's re-education. While, while we should be focused on you know, not teaching them what to think, but how to think. Another kind of cliche that we hear a lot that seems to be losing um, potency of meaning every day. And some educations are indeed just a kind of training and not the whole of education. So one of these, um, one of the concerns here is a thinking about um life in terms of put in political terms one should always think of the other political competitor as the opposition but never as the enemy and this emphasis on life and really what i mean is subjective experience right focus on the subjective rather than the objective and a focus on experience rather than a focus on understanding all speaks to uh, this student-centered approach, I think. Okay, anyway, so to dictate that, that you know there is a single correct attitude that has no rival, or even not even to get into not only the chief rival attitudes, so different attitudes, different ideas, theories, understandings, and then the level of the reasons that they give for themselves. And... We're going to get into this more and more in this season, this idea that 
not only do we need different ideas, but we also need all the different reasons for all the different ideas. And that this should be, this has to be in place before we can really even start any sort of emphasis or before we can really even become much interested in, well, which attitudes does any individual student, in this case, um, identify with themselves. So to dictate about certain single correct attitudes that is, it's ideological or it's indoctrinating. Unless we're dealing with, you know, absolute certainties like laws, right? Uh, you know, like, for example, in physics, um, you know, it might not necessarily be as important in some of the learning to understand all the chief rival attitudes and all the different reasons that they give. Some things are um, much more certain, if not absolute. But, but in terms of education, there's almost nothing that is immune to a rival attitude. Okay, in philosophical terms, the... Again, this focus on subjective experience and the focus on life itself rather than understanding and a shift away from rival attitudes and the reasons that they give uh, give rise to a different kind of education which also directly relates to this therapeutic turn in education so in philosophical terms the self-esteem driven therapeutic turn in education is a kind of hedonism that children ought to, above all else, feel good about themselves. This is hedonistic in spirit, in that it pursues pleasures, that which feels good. That the child in school ought to experience maximal joy is a commonly held idea, a dogmatism even. So establishing a conceptual linkage between therapeutization in education and educational hedonism, well, I hope enlighten present and future educators and although at times I'm I'm afraid that you know the uh, the utterances here may resemble some sort of a manifesto I would advocate for the de-therapeutization of education and a turning away from this feel-good emphasis and return to whatever pre-therapy pre-self-esteem movement pre-sel Basically, what we're talking about that then is, in positive terms, TC. So one element is to re-emphasize, to revive or at least revitalize esteem. This goes all the way back to Locke, um, which is not the esteem one feels for oneself simply by virtue of being oneself, but the esteem one enjoys from others. To be respected, to do that which earns respect, is just as important as an unconditional loving respect for the child in the hopes the child internalizes this emphasis. Again, as I mentioned, Locke, there's an idea that there are these opposing feelings, um, and they are the way you feel about yourself, but they're, they're, they're not in a vacuum. They are social in nature, that you earn either esteem or disgrace through what you do. 
Now, not all the time. Not everything has to be judged, you know, so harshly in such stark terms. But very simply, doing good will make others think good of you. Doing ill will make others think ill of you. And um, over a lengthy period of time, this is based probably just all relates to this notion of reputation. People will, you know, you'll develop a kind of a general sense of esteem or disgrace. Um, though I suppose some people are perfectly neutral and... Um, you know, everyone is a is a combination of, of different perspectives. Not only about themselves, but as others see them. But the, the point is to get away from some kind of, like an infinite and impenetrable self-esteem. Uh, whereby no matter, like, this may seem um, hyperbolic, but an infinite self-esteem whereby no matter how uh, again, sticking with these Lockean terms of esteem and disgrace, no matter how disgracefully you might behave, that it could never shake this um, this sort of monolithic self-esteem that one has for oneself. That it almost, like an excessive self-esteem, we would probably associate with narcissism. right? So we don't want, you know, I think it's quite obvious, we wouldn't want to, for example, raise an entire generation of narcissists. I'm not saying that we're doing that, but I'd say it's um, it's one way to think about a possible threat or downside with this overemphasis on this kind of unbridled or limitless self-esteem. We should think of esteem less in terms of self-esteem and more in terms of earned esteem. Esteem in this sense is it's implicitly social when you don't say self-esteem i think you're being you know when you say esteem you're indicating social esteem whereas self-esteem is you know again more related to something like self-concept or um again just the way that you experience your own goodness and that leads us into you know this this risk or threat of narcissism that no matter what no matter what I do, no matter what I achieve or fail to achieve or or my performance in any regard of life, I know how great I am uh, on the inside. And yeah, I think that some people are, in a sense, uncomfortable with this, partly because it can, it can disincentivize um, human achievement or even more, more simply just human behavior. And again, I'm going to keep coming back to these Rifean terms. So by the time we get to Philip Rife and fellow teachers, um, you know, uh, it'll all be very familiar vocabulary. But thinking of this, you know, therapeutic self-esteem, social-emotional learning, um, we can also think of this as a note of the endless expressional quest, EEQ, endless expressional quest, whereby... In, in an educational situation, students are transmitting their identity. Whereas what should be happening in education is that teachers should be transmitting culture and more specifically knowledge. You might even say combining the terms in a kind of a, a cultural knowledge. But the point here is that, well, first of all, that the transmission receiving using this radio analogy, 
is inverted, right? Teachers are supposed to be the ones transmitting, for example, knowledge, information, um, wisdom in the finest expressions of education. And students are supposed to be receiving. It doesn't mean that they're always, you know, in a sort of a passive, inactive role. This is, again, a part of this massive straw man that SC uh, erects of and against TC. But this idea that students need to be, you know, expressing and transmitting, um, you know, who they are in terms of their identity and um, from a place of, you know, therapeutic self-esteem, you know, positive self-regard. We just we just want to note the inversion here. So there is also at the same time, um, if we think of someone like Nietzsche, um, we do want to be cognizant of a swing into what might be called a tyranny of reason, that we don't want to completely neglect the affective and spiritual dimensions of life. Nevertheless, I'm inclined to believe that reason is a more reliable criterion for a better education for the person as both an an individual and as a citizen. So when we think of things like a new, this whole new SC education, well, I mean, dominant for a hundred years, but increasingly more and more interested in things like creative ability, authentic being, expressing existence, and will, not reason or not knowledge. But that it may fail to achieve these things. So, let me take a step back and just try to uh, differentiate these flavors of TVSC or NTVSC. And first, we would start with a distinction between something like reason and passion, okay? That reason that can be developed into something that is stoic uh, in terms of TC versus SC, student-centeredness, again, TC, teacher-centeredness, referring to kind of a, a classical pedagogy, whereas SC is a progressive. So reason and stoicism versus passion and hedonism. Okay, put it another way. Let me let me talk about TC and then I'll do the correlates for SC. Okay. TC, reason, understanding, and delayed gratification. And in terms of temperature, it should be cool. Okay, cool and calm. And it should draw students to what is difficult. SC, passion over reason, experience over understanding, and joy or elation over cool and calm. That it's based much more on pleasure than delayed gratification. And it doesn't really draw students to what is difficult. Um, I think it's probably, we could say it's meant to draw students to whatever may be seen as creative SC also has this strong bond with activism, 
whereas TC we'd associate with inactivism, a term that I believe Philip Rife may have kind of coined and popularized. Um, also in a contemporary sense, uh, Dennis Miller was fond of the term as well, inactivism. And uh, inactivism, I think, suggests that, well, well, on, on the one hand, it brings us back to this quote about the chief rival attitudes and the reasons they give, and to understand life, not just to live. That young people who haven't been exposed to the chief rival attitudes, let alone the reasons that those rival attitudes give towards themselves, and that they're still really in this experiential modality of living. They don't really understand life. And certainly that's understandable, certainly forgivable. But that they probably have very little to offer the political discourse of a nation, for example. So that, um, that TC education through reason that could become stoic, um, it, that it is contemplative and this was a bit of a struggle for me I really had to rack my mind thinking about a well if TC is contemplative then what is SC and the term that I came up with was temerarious right as in ever pertaining to temerity and this brings us back to the activism in activism Right, that there's a temerarious activism versus a contemplative inactivism here in TVSC. Contemplation, I think here I'm thinking more specifically of, you know, to look at something thoroughly for a long time. And again, the rival attitudes and the reasons they give and understanding rather than just living life. And that there's no way that Typically, students are young people, right? So when we're talking about education, teachers and students, we're also necessarily talking about uh, older and younger or the mature and immature generations in, in relationship. So there's this question of relevance which has come up and will continue to come up and there's also a slightly different really I can probably it's just a variation on relevance um, in terms of responsiveness right being culturally responsive it seems just to it seems mainly to manifest um, as a variety of relevancy but certainly I mean what is relevant and what's no longer relevant what you know, sometimes things do become antiquated, erroneous, or irrelevant. It certainly isn't impossible. Um, but on the question of relevance, student-centeredness, SC looks to the future. And in a way, it extrapolates or works backwards from some kind of, you know, portended future knowledge. Whereas TC would look to the past. And this is obvious in, 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 you know, philosophical theories like perennialism or pedagogy, such as perennialism and educational theory. And of course, we should be thinking about vegetation, right? Uh, perennials, they come back 
year after year. And, it, you know, for example, any notion that Plato's Republic is no longer relevant is just absurd. And so absurd that there'd be no purpose even in making the case for its relevancy. But the, this backdrop of teacher-centeredness, TC, um, is twofold, because it's it includes perennialism and essentialism, and it's not really always clear um, what the distinction or the relationship is. And I'm not as interested, I, I mean, these are ideas that inform what I'm uh, trying to focus on, and I'm not primarily, and this is a literary a literature review, but it's not really, it's only partially an intellectual history. So anyway, let me talk about um, these things very briefly. Perennialism seems to be more focused on pure academic knowledge, pure knowledge in an academic sense. And so I think that it is less flexible when it comes to something like curriculum. And I think there's an implication that if we are pursuing knowledge in this academic sense, and that we maintain a high standards, a rigorous kind of curriculum, that something like citizenship will um, increasingly take care of itself. Perhaps even character education um, will take care of itself. Essentialism, of course, asks, you know, what are the essentials? And so it seems to be more open to the question and thus more flexible in terms of the knowledge curriculum, that it has to have a knowledge curriculum, but um, that it seems more open, uh, it seems to more openly invite amendments. And it also seems to emphasize citizenship as a very important part of these essentials. Possibly even um, something like character education as well, uh, like individual virtue, something like that. So it's less purely focused on knowledge and academics. Um, okay. So those are the two roots of TC. And we already know the root of SC, which is clearer, that it's progressivism in education. And a line that I'm drawing from Rousseau to Dewey to Paulo Freire, or Freire, in the anglicized pronunciation. So, with a teacher-centered perspective, we are highly suspicious of any sort of claims about relevancy uh, or responsiveness. Partly because of a, a suspicion that any kind of knowledge curriculum, it, well, at the first level, it's often just described as being too hard. Um, and it, the, the first layer of the too hard, um, let's just, let's call it an excuse, is that it's, well, it's too hard for the students. So after you get past, well, you know, something like, let's just say, let's stick with Plato. Plato's not relevant anymore, okay? Plato isn't culturally responsive to the now. Um, 
But I think that because it so obviously is that if you press, then you the more you press, the more you get into these other layers. And then so if you press on this on the relevancy, well, you know, it's it's too hard for students that this is meant to be a kind of an appeal to a concern for students that, well, you know, if you make them do things that are too hard, that'll it'll unmotivate them, etc. But then if you push past that, then I think you'll get to the truth of it at this third layer, which is that truly it's too hard for teachers to teach. If you want to have a, you know, some sort of pure knowledge curriculum, something that's highly academic, uh, to use a sports analogy, I mean, you need to have the horses you need to have people who not only have read and comprehended, but even to teach you well, that, that have beyond mere comprehension, that understand, you know, Plato in this example. And anyone with a, with a really solid university education, um, you know, should have some understanding. But, you know, it's... You know, universities have become specialized and, um, you know, the, the knowledge base that teachers are supposed to have, um, and even the year that they are, or two, that they often spend in teacher's college, there's no real, there's not much new knowledge that's gained. It's more, again, an emphasis on methods and techniques and things like that. So we would have to, I think, use the psychoanalytic language here that as Freud might say this is a reaction formation which is just a complicated way of saying this is a way that any kind of a system defends or protects itself we think of a defense mechanism by turning its weakness into its strength well sure um our students you know graduate without any understanding of any important you know uh, literary or philosophical giants um, but actually that's a good thing because, you know, they're so unencumbered by knowledge that they're able to be, you know, free, independent, critical thinkers. Well, of course they think independently. They don't know anything about what anybody else thinks other than just themselves. And so it's a way to try to dress up these shortcomings, these failings. Um, you know, even oftentimes nations are compared um, or you know, geographical regions in general, compared in terms of their academic achievement, and to kind of take the weaknesses, um, and to kind of say, well, sure, I mean, we we can never compete with Asia in math, uh, but our math failings don't matter because we're so much better at something called creative thinking, or sorry, or critical thinking, that can't be measured. And so um, we're just going to put our eggs into that proverbial basket. Can I say that we're better than them and other things that cannot be measured so easily? Again, turning these weaknesses into strength through reaction formations. Okay, the last point that I want to make before um, moving on is this notion of, again, thinking of, of all the many ways that education has changed that we have to get back to education for its own sake. And that one of the trends that we've seen along with 
uh, student-centeredness is a focus on uh, skills and outcomes. And in a sense, there is a, there's a real marked tendency to want to manipulate the value of an education. How do, how do we make education more valuable? And not as uh, thus not something just pursued for its own sake, right? That we want to make it, you know, again, we want, uh, you know, 21st century critical thinking skills, right? If students have that, then their education will be more valuable to them. But I think that for TC, that an education for its own sake, in a kind of a pure sense, that is not uh, going out of its way to try to add to its own value somehow, is actually almost always going to be more valuable. That by trying to work backwards from, well, what are the valuable things, um, and then how do we pack those things into education, and thus, in the economy of education, start packing things in retroactively and pushing other things out. Um, I think we could form a hypothesis that the rise of this urge to make education more valuable and more relevant and all these things, that it has never worked, that it always does the opposite. That I think now in terms of people who really want to be highly successful, I think they see education as more irrelevant than anyone ever. And perversely, this may be because that trying to make yourself relevant, I mean, even to think of the realm of an artist, um, you know, popular or otherwise, that if you, okay, you're planning a new artistic project, let's say an album, and you say, you know what we really need this album to be is relevant, and I think once you start with that intention, um, something, something, something integrous is lost, or maybe even integrity itself becomes lost, right? Um, you know, a, a term like authentic is often hard to hard to define, um, but in many ways it it's also easy to recognize, and something fake, something inauthentic, uh, someone you know, struggling desperately to try to remain or to cling to relevancy is not a way, not a successful strategy to obtain it. So it's uh, paradoxical in that sense, perhaps. Okay. We're going to try really hard to make education relevant. And, you know, you suffer the same fate as the artist who's trying to do the same thing. Okay. So let's move into them. So as I noted here, season three, episode one, them part one, them is my convenient acronym for T, T, S, Elliot, H, Hannah Arendt, E, E, D, Hirsch, and M, Michael Oakeshott. This is a collection of conservative and thus also TC, both traditional conservative and teacher-centered. I had previously referred to them as the Tate Cluster is a great book written by uh, Tate, and these are the main figures from his most excellent book. So I've already wrapped up the loose ends, and 
as well as the overview of some key ideas. So now I'm going to talk about Tate and then move into Elliot. So, while I am trying to keep this lit review um, chronological, uh, it is difficult and there's going to be some, uh, some anachronistic uh, changes and also at times I'm going to be emphasizing the more thematic. So I think in, in well, season one wasn't, was really just based on a, a kind of a very general overview. And then two is really, really trying to be more uh, historical and chronological. But this is, this collection, again, this is really just based on someone else's book. Um, but it really ranges from, really from the 30s um, to the late 80s. So something like from 1932 to uh, 1989. From, you know, T.S. Eliot in the 30s, Hannah Rent in the 50s. Um, Edie Hirsch uh, has been working in education for a long time, still alive. And then uh, Michael Oakeshott as well, um, doing, well, work in, uh, again, also ranging um, decades. So in total, it covers almost a century. Um, it's something like the 30s to the 90s. Um, whereas if you'll recall, I think I, I think I, the previous season mainly focused on the 30s, 30s with some 40s and 50s. Um, and this will be moving into more contemporary space. Um, okay. But the book itself is from 2017. And in some ways, I felt like, you know, when I was just just starting out, in the early stages of this project because, I mean, largely this began by being so unsatisfied with some of my own experiences in education, not just in my own education, but also in my education education, which is my teacher's college, my bachelor of education, and um, feeling like, well, feeling like not only myself, but many of my other contemporaries, um, you know, that there was a, a collective sense at how kind of soft and kind of uh, namby-pamby our, our education was, um, you know, like you're weeks or months in and, um, you know, it's a lot of just the same cliches that keep being stated and the same, uh, the same kinds of things that are, you know, expected of you to say, um, yeah, that it was, um, that it didn't offer much in the way of intellectual stimulation. And certainly, um, some uh, highly intelligent people do find themselves on a path to becoming teachers, and can be fairly dissatisfied with the the ed school uh, experience. So later, I'll I'll, I'll focus on. Uh, I'll probably try to divide season four as to everything else before two thousand, and then maybe season five will be everything else after two thousand. Uh, but we'll, we'll see exactly how that'll break down. Okay, so let me talk about, well, um, all some of this, in terms of an overview, it is, uh, you know, some secondary literature on uh, Tate's uh, project here with um, T.S. Eliot, Hannah Rent, Edie Hirsch, and Michael Oakeshott, uh, again, in his uh, 2017 book. Okay, from Eliot, T.S. Eliot, Tate moves on 
to consider thinkers far less traditionally associated with conservatism. Tate's key point is that Oakshot, Arendt, and Hirsch all share with Eliot not political conservatism, but a propensity to challenge a pensée unique or groupthink, groupthink in education. Tate outlines what he considers to be today's pensée unique or groupthink, a view that education should be primarily relevant, there it is, education should be primarily relevant and enjoyable, that it should produce global citizens in a culture in which difference is celebrated, that it should develop non-judgmental attitudes in pupils and promote a particular kind of society, one without hierarchy of cultures or objective values. In sum, Tate argues today's school system has abandoned its prime duty to instruct in favor of social engineering. And in a way, Tate is making this argument through these four thinkers uh, who he groups together um, sort of in deployment of his own argument. And also, I think that they, they inform his perspective as well. In the same way that I'm now sort of uh, absconding um, this general idea into my broader umbrella of teacher-centeredness. So let me just linger on this groupthink. What is the groupthink that um, that Tate is against, and that Tate also believes that uh, that the the four characters of them are against too, that they are against. Education should be relevant. Education should be enjoyable. Education should produce global citizens. Um, Education should promote a particular kind of society without objective values. Education really is free to abandon its prime duty to instruct. And that education should socially engineer society. Okay. Students' own determination of relevant and interesting enjoyability is what ought to be taught so it's not only uh, this is a one of the strange things about relevancy and that's so ill-defined that it probably could mean whatever the teacher thinks is relevant um or whatever just in a that it could even you know refer more charitably to local school boards um or it can also refer to the individual student decides what they think is relevant. So who's deciding what's relevant, the school um, or the teacher or the student? But anyway, um, I think the point is that it's taken out of the curriculum, that there's no knowledge curriculum uh, whereby the relevant things that are important to learn are decided and uh, executed. There's also a notion that this is informed by parents' mistrust for teachers or parents' mistrust of education and also perhaps, you know, cultural in terms of child-rearing practices an excessive love or excessive love really meant as a kind of a worship for one's kids, uh, that your kids can do no wrong. And so um, thus, if you don't really trust, if you trust teachers less and you kind of 
outwardly love your kids more and more, then as a parent, I think you'd be quite happy for your kids to learn about what they want to learn about. This brings us back to the all-important question of what should teachers teach? And a lot of parents, I think they think, well, what my kid is interested in learning about. Teachers should teach my kid what my kid is interested to learn. As if no reasonable person might have objected. Well, what if the teacher isn't educated on that particular interest? Uh, and or if the students know more about it. Okay, my kid's interested in skateboarding. Teach my kid about skateboarding. Well, I don't know anything about skateboarding. And so there's no way I can teach it well. So what then? And again, another concern here, as has been stated, is that to follow the student's lead means that you have teachers acting like children, which I think we would largely recognize as undesirable. Once we open the question to what teachers should teach and indulge um, and answer other than, you know, any answer other than what they know. Teachers should teach what they know. That's all they should teach. They shouldn't teach anything that they don't know anything about. Once any other answer is entertained or taken seriously, we have initiated the self-destruct sequence of education. Teachers teaching from a position of ignorance can only lower educational quality. Kids should learn to praise the praiseworthy and so be completely judgmental. This idea that, that you know, uh, we should develop global citizens and celebrate difference and develop non-judgmental attitudes. Again, we want to expose them to chief rival attitudes and the reasons that they give for themselves. And they have to exercise this capacity of, of making judgments, but based on rival attitudes and their reasons. And really only to praise the praiseworthy, which means to be judgmental, not to be non-judgmental. And not at all be exposed to the leveling attitudes implicit in relativism. So relativism basically just means that there's no way to have any hierarchy of anything that's better than anything else. And what occurs is a kind of a leveling that every like nothing is really deserving of you know high esteem or praise. Um, nothing in the world externally is particularly of merit. Right, that everything is leveled down. Through exploring the work of Eliot, Oshot, Arendt, and Hirsch alongside each other, Tate makes a compelling case for the significance of knowledge of and from the past to the project of education. His view is conservative, because it looks to preserve culturally elite knowledge through its intergenerational transmission. However, it is also, at best, a radical challenge to today's educational groupthink that denies children access 
to the knowledge of the past and leaves them floundering with nothing beyond their own narrow horizons. So this is a great way to articulate TVSC. That, well, why do we need teacher versus student-centered? Why do we need these two things uh, back into a kind of a, a contest or competition with one another? Why do we need to repopulate the marketplace of ideas with, uh, a, a, with intellectual diversity, viewpoint diversity? Because without it, all you have is groupthink, and groupthink will continue to make whatever, whatever one idea uh, and just policing and gatekeeping that um, everyone has to be completely student-centered, and these are the correct attitudes that we're teaching students, um, that this only makes something, it makes, it, it makes education intellectually weaker, um, I mean, and it it, it keeps out any kind of challenge. And so you don't really learn how to defend against other other ideas. Um, and, and basically the whole enterprise intellectually becomes weaker uh, internally itself. And it doesn't, it also prevents itself from getting any, it doesn't draw intellectually strong people into it that education just becomes more and more regressive. Again, it becomes a, a monoculture, right? It becomes orthodox rather than heterodox. So we need, and if we're going to do anything about the group thinking education, Tate is absolutely right, that it has to be with what we might call conservative voices, and that we have to make the conservative case, and it's the, the title of his book. Floundering, adrift in the howling present, with no presiding presence in them. Again, the thing that, like the most important kind of thing, the really core essential thing. Presiding presence is another Rifean term. Um, knowing only their own endless expressional quests. Again, that they're not, it's not learning that is coming into students. It's them just expressing themselves as they are without transmission that is our duty we withhold their inheritance this is how we have to start thinking about you know well you know the old past stuff it's not relevant anymore so we're not going to teach it but everyone before us transmitted this to every other generation before us and every generation inherited this because the previous generation before them transmitted it to them this transmission and inheritance transmission and inheritance and then a presentistic, um, one particular presentistic generation decides that, well, all that stuff in the past, that was all bad. So we're not going to transmit it. Um, and the next generation is not going to inherit it. But again, when you are just a link in a very long line, in a, in a long chain, it's unclear where the authority to be able to make such a decision comes from, right? That we are going to end this cultural tradition because we, you know, we're, we are not enamored of it. And so we deprive them, the, you know, 
When we don't transmit, they don't inherit, and so we deprive them of a wealth of riches. We refuse to pull out a chair at the great conversational table of the feast for the mind. Again, simply, someone did it for us. Now, even if we don't like it, or even if we don't feel like it, we have to do it. It is our duty to transmit culture, and the next generation has to have its opportunity to inherit it. Someone did it for us, and someone did it for those who came before them, on and on, backwards. People obsessed with words like scaffolding should understand this point immediately. Thinking of and paraphrasing Nietzsche here, the wise critic of this age, looking at the banquet, condescending the inheritance, keeping it only for himself, looks at it and says that it is no good. And so it is right and just to deny children access to the past. Because whatever this, uh, you know, this whole intellectual inheritance, whatever it is, whatever it may be, it's not good enough, right? And the, the person in the present, the presentistic, presentist, um, knows that he can do better. And wishes to usurp the past. That why not, instead of teaching those old past ideas, why don't I just take my own ideas, which I think are so great? And those are the only ideas that the next generation is going to learn about. I mean, hubris doesn't even begin to express this. But in my view, no one generation possesses the authority onto itself to unilaterally disrupt transmission that is necessary for the continuation of the culture of civilization. Again, the traditional Western canon, the great conversation, and the civilization of the dialogue. Thinking back to Hutchins. Only the most unforgivable hubris can be at the root of the feeling that the continuation of the culture of civilization is just not important or relevant anymore. At least not compared to whatever I have to say now. It is obviously so much better than anything Plato said in the Republic. That the death silence of the great conversation is desirable because it will create space for barbaric yops. From Arendt, Tate takes the notion that the function of the school is to teach children what the world is like and not to instruct them in the art of living. Arendt locates the desire to instruct children in the art of living within the pursuit of egalitarianism through education. She argues schools need to refrain from imposing on education social engineering objectives. I'm seeing social engineering, S-E, and I'm thinking of S-C, student-centered. Social engineering objectives derived from the preoccupations of current adults. Again, not some great philosophical or literary cultural artistic tradition, 
but just the current adults and their social engineering objectives. And not teaching children what the world is like, but instructing them in how to live. Arendt is clear that the crisis in education is reflective of a broader crisis in tradition, and in particular, a crisis in our attitude to the realm of the past. Tate further takes from Arendt her notion that world citizenship is nonsense, and that the focus must be on national citizenship, given that, for the time being and for the foreseeable future, we remain in a world of nation-states, and it is only through nation-states that the rights and duties of citizenship are conferred. If you're a global citizen and you're being denied your rights, uh, what global entity can you make your appeal and make your case? It's your citizenship of your nation that affords you whatever rights and duties you have. World citizenship, global citizenship, it's, uh, it's a fuzzy hypothesis and nothing more. It's not actually a real thing. So what this leads me to think is, this is maybe seem like an arbitrary number, but I think that 90% of teachers think they should say things like they are student-centered and they're, you know, they're focused on critical thinking and global citizenship and uh, 21st century something or other. Yet... 90% of all of that, of all that, that set of all the things that 90% of teachers think they should say, I'm a student-centered, critical-thinking educator, educating global citizens in critical thinking because I'm so student-centered. 90% of that is complete nonsense. So 90% of 90% all uh, characterizes the, the amount of nonsense net total in education itself okay so what do the professional educationalist adults want to replace it with want to replace education with their own social objectives for example an emphasis on social justice and equality or equity diversity equity inclusion a coup with nothing but the best of intentions is otherwise known as a coup Quote, it is through making the conservative case for education that Tate provides us with a devastating critique of many of the ideas that have become central to schooling today, such as the pervasive therapeutic ethos that privileges a pupil's emotional well-being above intellectual risk-taking. And this is another important idea that uh, is probably secondary here um, in this season with them and I'll try to get into more of it uh, in the next season. But this idea that schools are responsible for the emotional well-being of students is really, a com I would even say, a radically new um, idea. And especially if, if they are obtaining what might be called, you know, negative emotion from um, an 
from the exact and exacting study of, uh, of, you know, highly challenging, rigorous academic environments, then the emotional well-being takes precedence, simply put. And insofar as it's uh, as these things cannot coexist and we have to form priorities, um, and it's it's not a matter of, well, you know, finding some space for some emotional well-being in this what's described here as intellectual risk taking or or otherwise just a rigorous pursuit of knowledge in a you know in a knowledge curriculum and uh it's not even balancing these things again it is the overwhelming this kind of colonization or monopolization that any intellectual threat to complete emotional well-being is uh, unimaginable. Now, okay, that's um, maybe a bit hyperbolic, but there's a sense that there's been a complete inversion that I think that schools have always been intellectual, and yet they've always also cared about the emotional well-being but that that would be in the minority position of a school's mission. And I think that schools have reinterpreted their mission as being therapeutic institutions, where the emotional well-being is more important than the intellectual goals or the intellectual merit. Certainly more important than the curriculum. If the curriculum is making someone feel bad, the curriculum has to change. For example... Most significantly, Tate is critical of the way education's rejection of the past means a generation of young people have been left without any concept of it. Education's rejection of the past only means one generation's refusal to transmit culture, also known as a cultural revolution in education in the West. And why should we be surprised? The word revolution is so universally adored and publication so universally adorned with it. Of course, this is the result. Again, believe people when they tell you what they're doing. We need a radical revolution in education. This is exactly what even completely vanilla, milk toast people in education say just because it's, it sounds good. It's like an applause line. Uh, meanwhile, the true believers actually were busy about the business of doing it. We have to hope for a, now, counter-countercultural movement of young people lusting for past wisdom and rediscovering it on their own and essentially having to reboot Western cultural civilization assuming they can survive the institutionalized postmodern deconstructionist guerrillas and their tar and feather tactics. Education has declared war on the past. At universities, students demand the removal of statues and argue for courses to be decolonized and cleansed of the influence of dead white men. Academics look to internationalize the curriculum 
and promote global citizenship. The curriculum that privileges the equal representation of different identity groups over both tradition and intellectual merit. But teaching to represent diversity means privileging the current moment now, that women and black people are more readily able to make their mark on the world. As a result, the past is reduced to decontextualized snippets, erased entirely or read selectively to meet the more prosaic goals of today's schools. Young people come to inhabit a permanent present, a year zero. Makes us think of the phrase, the Great Reset, a permanent present, a great zero, or as Philip Rife says, um, to be adrift in the howling present. Okay, continuing. Education has not always been driven by disdain for the past. Knowledge of and from the past was central to an educational project conceived as a conversation between the generations and the means by which children were granted access to their intellectual birthright. This notion first began to be challenged by radical educators in the 1960s who focused on schools' roles in reproducing and legitimizing social inequality. Instead of arguing that working-class children deserved better teaching and more access to knowledge, these radical educators attacked the content of the curriculum itself. According to this way of thinking, Matthew Arnold's definition of culture as the best which has been thought and said in the world was no more than a cover for promoting the knowledge and values of a social elite. It was assumed that middle-class children performed well because their knowledge was recognized in the classroom, while working-class children failed because their particular knowledge was not credentialized. I can't imagine um, a more obviously false idea. This idea that students over the entire course of their education are continually judged by what they learned outside of school, right, in their middle class or in their working class, that they're judged by what they learned from their social class rather than what, they're, what they've learned in school over an entire course of, you know, K-12 and university education, that they're constantly and continually judged by that outside knowledge rather than by any inside knowledge, it really is, uh, it's an extreme hypothesis that would require overwhelming evidence. So the other important thing here is about this denying the next generation their intellectual birthright or their intellectual inheritance um, through this cultural transmission. Uh, again, radical educators in the 60s who are focused on inequality. Uh, if equality exists and it's possible that education might be able to uh, do something about inequality, then education should completely focus itself on solving the inequality problem. 
And um, let's assume that it started in the 60s. Um, so we've had... let's just say we've had let's say we have we had 50 to 60 years of education stamping out equality at the expense of you know knowledge if you could reach the conclusion that it's somewhere between possible or likely that well we have just as much inequality so it didn't succeed in that um and people are generally less well-educated um, in terms of, certainly in terms of traditional standards. Again, these trade-offs involving, <laughs> involving you know, uh, equality and freedom, uh, very rarely do they pay off. So um, it, it may be the worst of both worlds. Certainly the best of both worlds would be an educational system that was powerful enough to continue to teach to extremely high degree standards while also adding to its mission um, this, this aspect of eradicating inequality somehow. I often think why, why people think of education as having the power. Um, why would anyone think of education as, for example, the silver bullet? I mean, what is the what is the success rate of education that gives people so much confidence in it? I mean, at the same time, most people would just say, you know, it would be easy to expose people's low opinion of education too. You don't really learn anything important. Your teachers don't know anything. Um, yet, strangely, that that idea coexists like an extreme pessimism that like. Don't really expect anything. Schools are just, it's all just babysitting. That's all that it is. And yet at the same time, it's the kind of, um, it would be reasonable to have this opinion, this silver bullet thing that humanity has that's going to solve inequality. It, it, it would make sense if people said that it was going to be done with science. Our science is our strongest uh, tool, let's say, could be our chief weapon in solving really big problems. It's kind of the only thing that we have with any track record of being able to solve really, really big problems. And so it's very strange that we placed all of our faith in the 1960s in education to eradicate inequality. I mean, what what reason did anyone have to believe that that would succeed? Or what would the defenders have said against the critics, saying, there's absolutely no reason to believe that education can possibly succeed at addressing inequality. Um, it doesn't make sense. It's not going to work. It's just going to make education worse at the things it could do well by trying to task education to do things it cannot possibly do well, then all you're going to end up with is a society with just as much inequality, but even less education. And if you really believe that education can solve inequality, you should just focus on the education itself. Hopefully that enough people get enough education that 
Maybe somebody smart enough will come along and have some idea about what to do about inequality. But of course, there, there's someone who knows what to do already came along, and that was Karl Marx. Okay, back to the back to um, Tate here. Teaching the established canon, transmitting a body of subject knowledge, and inducting children into their national, cultural, and literary heritage came to be rejected as elitist practices. This is just another absolute hallmark of uh, student-centeredness, right? Elite. Anything they don't like is just elitist, right? They're student-centered, they're 21st century, critical-thinking, global citizen, anti-elitist educators. It led to decentering knowledge, or the decentering of knowledge, particularly knowledge of or from the past. Again, the permanent present, a year zero. And the installation in its place of a cultural relativism that positioned children themselves at the heart of education. And in a vacuum, it can sound pretty good. We need to position children themselves at the heart of education. It's the kind of thing that if you just only focus on that aspect of it, it really doesn't sound that bad. It just sounds like, you know, it's student-centered, right? We're going to position students at the heart of education. What about uh, the things that we want students to learn? Nope. Students themselves. Not their actual education in terms of a goal or an endpoint, but just in terms of their identity as it currently exists, for example. Okay, so Nicholas Tate, who I've been talking about most of this podcast here. Tate, former Chief Curriculum and Qualifications Advisor to the UK Secretary of State for Education. So in this work, he draws out the consequences of this move in his book, The Conservative Case for Education. Again, from where I'm getting these four thinkers, them. If one stops giving priority to aspects of a society's past that have been culturally more determining than others, Tate writes, one abandons altogether the very idea that education is about induction into and transmission of something already existing. So, in my sense, TC, which I don't, I'm not primarily thinking of traditional conservative, but more in terms of teacher-centered, but anyway, TC, it's all about something that already exists, this world that we have, that, and this project that we want to continue. Or sometimes America is referred to not as a project, but as an experiment. And it's something that already exists that we'd like to continue. And this radical other challenge that has, you know, frankly, with incredible speed, already taken over education, well, certainly already taken over pedagogy, hasn't completely overtaken education yet, just based on the strength of many teachers' teaching practices that ultimately resist, mainly by ignoring some of these things. That education is no longer predicated on something that already exists. That's why the past doesn't matter. That's why 
because it's not interested in continuing anything that was and is. It just wants to, as we, as we say, imminentize the eschaton. It knows where it's going, right? It's focused on the future that it claims to know, whereas TC focuses on the past that it actually knows. And it's this emphasis, whether we pay attention to the future or to the past, um, that largely informs how we behave in the present. And TC wants to transmit an inheritance of something that already exists, that we believe is valuable, that we want to continue. We want to see it continue on existing. There's nothing that the permanent revolution year zero great reset um i mean they just they know the end point that they're trying to get to and that's the focus again some sort of utopian paradise on earth but more specifically in education um this focus on this tyranny of relevance student-centered teaching or a pedagogy of the oppressed starts from where learners are and risks leaving them there. As Tate explains, this can lead to a self-congratulatory imprisonment within one's cultural identity. It's better to take students somewhere. Don't start at their identity and sort of congratulate yourself for doing so if it doesn't really go anywhere or lead to anything interesting or important. It, so it's better to take them somewhere rather than meet them where they are in terms of their identity and leave them there. Take them somewhere. Consider the transformative potential of education. It's power to begin from where learners are and through opening up a whole world of knowledge, take them somewhere else entirely. this kind of transaction is transformational very often the the sc straw man hollow man would just say that well this this kind of transaction it's just banking and it's not transformational it's fallacious the idea that the student's mind is a bank into which knowledge can be deposited and withdrawn discounts that all learning all knowledge transactions are already inherently transformational. This idea that it's so easy that it's below us to just take some knowledge in somebody's mind and put that knowledge into someone else's mind in this passive and active way, thinking about uh, this bank accounts analogy, this transfer of funds. Um, only someone who doesn't know anything about education could think that way. Or, or could even think that that is such an easy thing to do, that it is somehow below us, that we have evolved so far beyond that. It, there could only be, I think, an ideological explanation for how teachers who must all know this, right? Oh, you know. If it's so easy to just <laughs> to, to, to transfer and transmit knowledge like this, if that refers to the state of how advanced education has become, then why don't 
we have the best educated people of, compared to anywhere else in the world or any other point in human history. A lot of people may think, and they have a strong case, that education keeps actually getting worse. While education is this attitude that, oh, just just teaching people things. I mean, that's so easy. That's, you know, we're not, we're not even trying to do that anymore. That's so basic. Anyway, of course, all teachers know that this idea, that this Freerian argument that dismisses transactions as, you know, of this banking model, um, no. If you're a teacher, you already know this. Okay, don't you can't let the ideologically cloud the obvious point that any kind of transaction of knowledge from a teacher to a student is transformational. Okay, so that's kind of a, a, a Freirian point, debunked as best I can in 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 a, in a brief moment here. Okay, sticking with Tate, if we allow students the opportunity to stand on the shoulders of giants. If we don't allow the students this opportunity to stand on the shoulders of giants, they will never be able to see further. If students are denied knowledge of the past, they will never be able to make an impact on the future. The demand that all young people, irrespective of social class, gender, or skin color, should have access to the best, which has been thought and said in the world, challenges convention. So here we see the the kind of paradox of progressivism, right? That we're so progressive that we don't agree that everyone, regardless of what they may look like, uh, should get the best possible education. Today, then, the people best able to defend the transformative potential of education are conservative in the sense that they see knowledge of or from the past as worth preserving and transmitting to a new generation. So, um, I was talking about this idea that, okay, we can think of the student's world, right? Their own individual subjectivity. And what we want to do is transport them or transplant them out of their world into something, again, it, it sounds grandiose, but into the world of ideas or towards the life of the mind. Now, certainly in early years, you're just building towards these things, which is, you know, which is an essential part. Something as basic as literacy, right? So transporting or transplanting students out of their world, okay, into the world of ideas, the life of the mind, the Western cultural tradition, the canon, the great conversation, the civilization of the dialogue. But it moves them out of their world, and it expands and enlarges their world. Rather than trying to fit all of this into that own student's, frankly, narrow identity. Right? How can we bend and cram and stuff the world of ideas, the life of the mind, the Western tradition, the great conversation, the civilization of the dialogue. How can we fit all of that into inside the student's world without expanding it, but just in such a way that it suits the contours of the student's world 
of the in an unmoved state. That we have to import, you know, all of those uh, benefits, um, all of that in, that intellectual payload, and uh, you know, import it into the student's extant, unmoved reality of where they are. There's just no way that it can work. Almost, I'm almost making a kind of an appeal to space, right? That that can't all fit within into the student's world working backwards in some sort of import uh, kind of flow that we have to take the student out of their world and bring them into this bigger world we cannot fit the bigger world into the little world of the student's own subjective cultural personal identity so uh, I've got a let me continue on and thinking uh, about T.S. Eliot in particular here. So likewise, in what serves as a useful repost to today's progressive educators, Eliot argues cultural transmission is the best prompt for creativity because it is through a sense of tradition that people become most conscious of their own contemporaneity and are therefore able to create work that is original and has value. So put another way, if you know nothing about what's been done or created before you, you might seek to quote-unquote create some poor imitation of some work you're ignorant of. right? What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create something that is, you know, like this or looks like that. Um, you know, not knowing that some previous work... Um, has already attempted to do that and is already basically considered to be this sort of perfect example of it. And you're an artist working in that sphere or domain and that you would be completely ignorant of the, the great achievements of past artists basically doing the exact same thing that you've done. Right? I mean, you can certainly imagine, you know, someone who seems to think they have this original idea to be let's just say someone distinctive like Jackson Pollock and uh, then they start showing off their work and people just are saying this 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 really just seems to be a poor imitation of Jackson Pollock and you know they they would just say who the heck is Jackson Pollock just as an example um so there's a sense that when we talk about tradition we're also talking about certainly a creative tradition, right? A philosophical, intellectual, literary, artistic, creative tradition, right? Um, a tradition of creators and creations and creativity, right? And so there's this really false and fraudulent idea that, well, tradition is anti-creative. And if you're going to be creative, you have to be anti-tradition, Again, um, this is what happens when ideas are never pressed or never tested, right? That incredibly stupid ideas can really thrive, right? Like even something that may superficially seem plausible, like tradition and creativity have this antithetical, um, you know, antagonistic relationship. 
that only by knowing anything about tradition can you actually create something new. Otherwise, how would you know if you're creating something new or not, if you don't know about what's already been created? You need tradition in order to be creative. Okay. Okay. So against the received educational wisdom of the past 50 years, uh, Tate is challenging the intellectual orthodoxy of cultural relativism, child-centered education, or student-centered education, and equality that has dominated educational thinking to the point where it is no longer questioned. Again, just assumptions taken for granted, simply taken for granted. The familiar backcloth against which educational decisions reaching out from the government to the classroom are taken. People cannot begin to make sense of the modern world unless they have got what used to be called a well-stocked mind. That is, a firm overview of the main trends in world history and a fair amount of actual knowledge. And if you don't know anything about the world or history and you don't possess any knowledge, critical thinking is going to be quite useless to you. Okay, if, you, if there were two people in a debate, one who really knew a lot about the world and history and had actual knowledge and could summon facts versus you know the finest critical thinker who had none of those things, um, it's fairly obvious, I think, who you might, who you would bet on in such a debate. It is, says Tate, associated with fun, with a lack of objective values. Education here is associated with fun, with a lack of objective values, with the equal valuing of all cultures, with the struggle against inequality, and with the surrender of national to international priorities. A liberal education set out to be relevant to the child's needs. And again, taken in isolation, education should be relevant to the child's needs. Okay, um, well, to which needs of which child at which point? Again, when you try to be completely flexible, right, that what all of the needs of all children at all different times... Um, It just becomes so amorphous that, again, in order to be relevant to all the different needs of all the different children all the time, um, there's no way to accommodate that as well as a knowledge curriculum. So it seems, in somewhat of a, I think a cynical hypothesis, that this is just the best possible sounding way to get rid of the burden of any kind of knowledge or any kind of transmission of any of any extant cultural understanding. You, uh, teachers no longer become accountable uh, to any, any kind of knowledge curriculum, right? All they can do is claim that they're doing their utmost to be relevant to, to, to child's needs. And who can say that they aren't? Taking Eliot's conclusions on the purpose of education, and how we can translate them into a practicality of teaching and learning? The answer, says Oakshot, lies in the concept of school. So I'm moving to Oakshot here. 
uh, which confusingly is not the same as school. So school with a capital S and inverted commas, or capital S school with scare quotes, is a place apart, detached from the hurly-burly of everyday life. Again, very distinct from a notion of relevant and responsive. A place apart, detached from detached from life, detached from the hurly-burly of everyday life. A place where initiation into the society's culture can be achieved through the close relationship between pupil and teacher. It is a place of hard work, detached from the immediate world. It is a place for the development of intellectual virtues, including disinterested curiosity, patience, intellectual honesty, exactness, industry, concentration, and doubt. Anyone lucky enough to teach in a good university will recognize the description, the challenge, and the potential reward. But the pupil-teacher relationship that Oakshot describes may be in short supply in year nine double French on a wet Friday afternoon. So sure, it is sort of high-minded and idealistic, um, but certainly um, so is the use of education to eradicate inequality and usher in a utopia. Tate identifies several enemies of this, this special brand of school, uh, capital S, inverted comma, scare quotes, um, capital S school. He starts with the political imperatives of inclusion and equality, which, he says, now trump other educational principles, such as fairness, liberty, and standards. Again, diversity, inclusion, equity. Uh, sometimes referred to as DIE, but that seems to have been overtaken by uh, DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. Social justice, which Oakshot insists is not the aim of education, currently takes precedence over education for its own sake, which he insists is the only true aim. And again, a point that I've been trying to develop is that if we focus on education for its own sake, that will actually have more of a benefit for social justice or for the remote goals of social justice than this immediate, this direct focus. And people will still be well-educated at the same time. Therapeutic education for well-being, happiness, self-esteem, and so on, is another of Tate's targets. And so is the increasing erosion of authority, which renders more difficult the achievement of school with its traditional interpretation of culture and respect for the past. And so one thing I want to comment upon is this very strange relationship that you have this, on the one hand, you have these political goals, Right for diversity, inclusion, equity—that uh, you know, so-called social justice warriors or really, really change agents—is the is the term du jour. These are the passionate young people who are going to remake the world. Right. Then at the same time, they're the same change agents who need this, um, frankly, heavy-handed therapeutic emphasis. Uh, to deal with the epidemic of mental illness and how unwell and how anxious and depressed they are 
um, or may seem to be or are diagnosed and medicated as being. And frankly, I mean, just simply by, by virtue of, of being young um, and existing as they do in the present, where it's largely thought that you know, education is in a kind of a state of crisis, which certainly we've been hearing for a long time. But I suppose the longer a crisis goes on unaddressed, the worse that it gets. So they're frankly not very well educated. Um, so you've got young, ill-educated um, people that ha- that basically are, in many ways, at least that are mentally ill and that these these ill these uneducated mentally ill people these are the people we need um as children to remake our society into something better so and i I don't mean to be you know harsh or judgmental but it's just this juxtaposition of these political change agents that again are um products of these therapeutic institutions and again, with these, again, you keep hearing about when you when you hear about the change agents, and you hear about the um, epidemic of mental illness, we tend not to think of them as the same cohort. If we do think of them as the same cohort, then I think the prob- a potential problem emerges quite clearly. Right, that we need to take our youngest, least stable, least educated people. And we need to put them in charge right away. And when you put it in those terms, even though it is it's it is admittedly somewhat selective, um, who are the people who are saying we need, um, you know, strong, healthy, um, liberty-seeking, fair-minded, standard bearers uh, to emerge from a generation to become its leaders? I think that that we're at such a politically polarized point that that would be seen as some sort of radically conservative kind of idea. But anyway, this point about um, about instability, right? That, that or this overlap between the unstable change agent, right? The unstable social justice warrior. Um, that is the the unhinged. What I was talking about earlier was about, you know, the temerarious activist, right? This activism characterized by temerity, that is ultimately destructive, in how and how you know activistic temerity and destructiveness. Um, again, st- stemming from a, a philosophy of passion and hedonism, versus you know the 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 opposite the teacher-centered, anti-student-centered, that, that, again, based on reason, not on passion, that is stoic and not hedonistic, that's kind of cool and calm and contemplative and inactive or inactivist in political orientation. Okay. Again, thinking um, this word, this Arnoldian word has come up many times, uh, a pursuit of our total perfection. Of course, uh, unattainable for humans, but nevertheless, um, education as this pursuit of individual um, mental intellectual perfection by means of getting to know 
on all the matters which most concern us, the best which has been thought and said in the world. Okay, so let me move into Elliot for a few minutes, and uh, I'll wrap this up. So, the first T, sorry, the, the T in them, the first of the four letters of them, T.S. Eliot. Um, that there are, he's talking about the conditions for culture. Uh, there are three conditions. The first is the organic structure that's not merely planned, but is growing. And such as um, will foster the hereditary transmission of culture within a culture. That a culture has to pass on or transmit. That there's a kind of, a, again, a hereditary quality to it. Champions of social equality dispute this. The difference of opinion turns on whether the transmission of group culture must be by inheritance. Whether each cultural level must propagate itself so there's there's a sense that there's um you know that the elites only transmit their own eliteness and thus transmission is itself anti-equality but again as we've seen a complete non-transmission is a perfect inequality in that it brings everybody back to the year zero right that we have to consider, what we have to consider is the parts played by the elite and by the class in the transmission of culture from one generation to the next. So interestingly, there is, there's a, a leaning into the elite here and saying that actually there is a class like a cultural elite and they in particular have this obligation that they have this duty that they are the ones responsible for transmitting some sort of intellectual, artistic culture. The, the cultural elite, the upper class, the upper crust, the snobs, that they have an important function that they have to do. It is their function in relation to the producers to transmit the culture which they have inherited just as it is their function in relation to the rest of their class to keep it from ossification. Right? Not, not just to pass it along as some dead thing, but to keep it alive in this organic sense. It is the function of the, whole, of the class as a whole to preserve and communicate standards of manners. The purpose of education, it seems, is to transmit culture. So culture, which has not been defined yet, is likely to be limited to what can be transmitted by education, while education is perhaps allowed to be more comprehensive than the educational system, we must observe that the assumption that culture can be summed up as skills and interpretations controverts the more comprehensive view of culture which I have endeavored to take. I, meaning uh, Elliot here. Um, so, even though, basically, in, the entire culture is involved in this uh, renewal and this passing on um, of kind of keeping the best things alive, um, but this, this also involves all these different levels, actually. It was Gramsci going all the way back talking about this, um, this cultural 
this grand cultural project that a culture kind of keeps itself alive at its best works or its best ideas. But it doesn't have to be that everyone in the culture is an expert in something. That simply by appreciating something that you are um, directly involved in it. And certainly explicit in Elliot is, uh, and I think also in, in Gramsci, there is this notion of, uh, of a cultural elite that has a more of a specialized role to play. But, um, but whether you are a, a creator or whether you are just a, a consumer or an, an appreciator, um, that, that, that it's really all, that they're all necessary parts to play um, in all these different things that we want to keep alive and transmit and, and keep, keep going. For the schools can transmit only a part, and they can only transmit this part effectively if the outside influences, not only of family and environment, but of work and play, of newsprint and spectacles and entertainment and sport, are in harmony with them. The idea here is that schools, if they're going to do their job of transmitting the parts of culture that can be transmitted through education, but even still, they need help. Note education or schooling, um, the distinction between education and schooling here. Education can only play a small part if the culture supports it somehow. Um, this actually seems to go against uh, Postman's idea of um, the thermostatic view of education, which is not, which goes against this idea that you need this battery of uh, of sameness between education and the general culture uh, supporting each other. The opposite idea, or the rival attitude, would be that education, again, and Oakshot as well, that it has to be a world apart. Right. Uh, so, for example, in a um, in a very traditional society, um, schools should be very innovative, or in a very uh, technologically innovative, disruptive type culture, something more like what we have now. Then education should be more traditional, uh, or even more authoritative, um, if the world outside of it is somehow less authoritative. Okay. For there is no doubt that in our headlong rush to educate everybody, we are lowering our standards and more and more abandoning the study of those subjects by which the essentials of our culture, of that part of it which is transmissible by education, are transmitted, destroying our ancient edifices to make ready the ground upon which the barbarian nomads of the future will encamp in their mechanized caravans. So a great um, kind of secondary commentary here. This considers uh, Eliot, but also Bourdieu. Moreover, since the socially disempowered seem generally more vulnerable and less equipped to respond to new challenges, the uncertainty and confusion that may arise from challenging oppressive categories may turn out to be far more oppressive, while the better-equipped, entrenched elites may simply appropriate the, culture, the conceptual change for their own undemocratic purposes. 
This argument, which Bourdieu seems to suggest by his condemnation of, quote, radical chic, has undeniable power. The fact that such arguments are deployed effectively by pragmatic conservatives like T.S. Eliot does not preclude their use for Bourdieu's more progressive social aims. So even though Bourdieu's politics and aims are certainly different from Eliot's, um, he's making a similar point here about this, these kinds of changes. And so, for example, these paradoxes that arise, that education is going to orient itself towards eradicating inequality, right? Uh, education is going to create some perfect, perfectly equal society somehow. But what really happens when something like it, when an institution like education completely radically revolutionizes its own mission, who are the ones who are able to respond effectively to this kind of a change and continue to try to get some sort of real cultural currency, some real value out of education? Well, certainly it's going to be the parents and the families and the communities that are, you know, going to interrogate and figure out, okay, so you've radically revolutionized education. What are the changes now? And figuring it out and navigating those waters to be able to respond to radical revolutionary changes in education is something that only the, that, you know, really elite family units are going to do in a way that it is unequally well compared to others, right? Uh, poor single income, you know, single parent type households. There's less of this, you know, really intense focus on, you know, curriculum and pedagogy and educational changes. And the more that an education system comes less and less to resemble the educational experience that, that the parents had, the more specialized that kind of knowledge becomes. And so actually, if you radically revolutionize the institution of education, even in the name of being, you know, for equality and anti-inequality, that those who are able to adjust to the changes in the institution are going to be people that already in some way, are unequally advantaged. People who are, for whatever reason, simply more able to be more attentive to what's going on in education. Another concern is that, of course, we must balance experimental changes with stability. And so the experiments... And these changes must be carefully assessed and minimized. The downsides certainly have to be minimized. But what happens in education that we we get sweeping changes for political or moral reasons, much more than we see some kind of sound social science approach, whereby we have these pilot programs, these whereby we test these hypotheses in small groups. Um, I mean, to a point where we even have to be suspicious, I think, of anyone calling anything evidence-based. That's what it's supposed to suggest, right? That, well, um, 
I mean, any new educational um, emphasis, let's just say anti-racism, right? This is a, you know, a program that has had considerable success at turning racists into non-racists. And we're going to deploy it strategically wherever we find uh, obvious examples of racism um, that I don't think anybody could would be against that. We have the cure for racism and we're going to use it to cure the racists. Like, okay, well, it does it really work. And like, you know, what, what, what kind of amazing discovery, what amazing technology would be. Instead, we have, you know, something like, you know, telling people that racism is bad and not being racism is good and doing that for everybody. Uh, and again, not, not that that's, it's not necessarily bad. It's only bad in terms of the opportunity cost of, in the economy of education, of what any emphasis, what any program uh, resultantly de-emphasizes. Present-day schoolmasters or headmistresses, like those of the past, are meant, for example, to hold the fort against the totalizing incursion of popular culture. So this is the thermostatic view again, that education is a world apart, as, uh, as Oakeshott says, that it has to be this special, separate sphere. And you cannot allow the totalizing incursion of popular culture. For example, if popular culture becomes um, obsessed with something like racism and eradicating racism or inequality and eradicating it, having this some sort of uh, perfectly equal or equitable, um, you know, uh, racial utopia, immanentizing the eschaton. But um, education shouldn't just copy what is most prominent in popular culture, because then that's the, that's the only thing that kids learn, just this one dominant set of ideas. And no set of ideas is so perfect that it's the only thing anyone should ever learn. Again, going back to the chief rival attitudes toward life. What are the chief rival attitudes? Even thinking of, I believe, Popper here, and you know that any, that we need a falsifiability test, right? Anything that is just so kind of good sounding that it's impossible to be against, um, probably doesn't have a lot to offer as a theory, right? That uh, you know, we need to make education completely focused on being against. You know, education just has to be anti-evil. Um, okay. Um, it just sounds so obviously good that it's hard to be against. Uh, but again, how can we test it to see if, that's, if it's possible or if it makes sense or if it can possibly work? Okay, so again, this, this totalizing incursion of popular culture. And that education has to resist this. Education can't just become a mirror to the popular culture right then all you have is you have no distinction anymore between entertainment and education entertainment becomes education and education becomes entertainment when these lines break down
So, um, you can say that maybe this is actively happening, or that, um, you know, school may stop and it may transmit, and, um, so like, this could be an active process of, you know, incursion suggests something active, right? That popular culture is colonizing education. So it could be an active kind of thing. But there's a, a different way to think of it, which I think is more accurate than incursion here. That all that's required is for schools to just stop transmitting culture in the way that they, they have. Then there's simply no competitor to popular culture, saying that it wins by default because schools stop doing their job. They stop fulfilling their mission. And so all that are left are popular culture ideas. So it's not so much, okay, you could think of it this way. Um, so namely, you know, in popular culture, we certainly see extremely powerful moneyed interests and the other new power, probably the ascendant power in popular culture, is activism or activists. And then there's also this unholy alliance of activists and moneyed interests. Um, what we would probably, the best term for it probably would be grifters. This, the, the incredible and awesome power that grifters have uh, at the intersection of powerful moneyed interests and activists. Okay, so in 1932, Eliot wrote an essay entitled Modern Education and the Classics. He starts out this essay by describing the state of education. Quote, one might almost speak of a crisis of education. The progress, I do not mean the extension, the progress of education for several centuries has been one aspect a drift, from another aspect a push, for it has tended to be dominated by the idea of getting on. Getting on, I believe, is sort of a British um, idiom to meant to indicate success. The individual wants more education, not as an aid to the acquisition of wisdom, but in order to get on. The nation wants more in order to get the better of other nations, right? If we're a better educated nation than you, then we'll be more successful, richer. The class wants it to get the better of other classes and class competition, or at least to hold their own against them. And this is the equalizing effect of something like public education, okay? Even if you're poor, working class, if you get a great education, you'll always be um, able to compete economically. And success here is sort of in this craven form. It's not really based on the... It's, it's distinct from excellence. Okay. And it has a lot to do with also the eyes of others, right? Being a success in the eyes of others, being seen as successful um, rather than you know, again, something more independently virtuous like excellence. Eliot continues by saying, Education becomes something to which everybody has a right. 
even irrespective of his capacity. And when everyone gets it, by that time, of course, in a diluted and adulterated form, then we naturally discover that education is no longer an infallible means of getting on. As soon as this precious motive of snobbery evaporates, the zest has gone out of education. It is not going to mean more money, or more power over others, or a better social position, or, at least, a steady and respectable job. Few people are going to take the trouble to acquire education. And I think that's exactly where we are right now. I think that basically um, education has, in a way, been exposed for not really delivering highly educated graduates, basically for failing in its prime duty, its prime directive. And I think people are becoming... I think the first step is that people become less and less impressed by people with traditional academic university qualifications. And then, um, almost at the exact same time, people just become less interested in wanting to go to university. It's just not seen as a great way to spend one's uh, time and money. So, education is for success because it conveys an advantage and education is a right in the service of equality which is it an advantage for success right you get an education to get an advantage to get have success individual success uh, or is it an equal human right and no it can't be both one puts someone ahead okay i'm i'm getting an education so like i can i can get ahead so i can you know, get on the other is antithetical to any such notion right you can't get ahead of other people in equality or you can't be the most equal or you can't have the most rights right i mean by virtue of these terms everyone has them just the same Equal rights are, of course, predicated on or militate against those with too much advantage, getting too much success, because that's anti-equality, uh, or simply you could say that it is competition. So saying that getting a great education, um, it really, it is a privilege to be well-educated, um, and that it conveys this competitive advantage. And to say so is just to be honest. This other view that, well, no, uh, education, we're going to educate everyone, and through public education, we're going to be this equalizing um, influence, and we're going to stamp out inequality through education. Um, and that we... We want to continue to have education, but we don't want it to convey any competitive advantage to anyone. Um, like it just becomes so confusing that there's just it 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 can't that narrative can't have the virtue or the benefit of honesty itself. 
when uh, Elliot talks about the zest has gone out of education. Again, reminded of the phrase, a dampening of the ardor has occurred. Education loses its luster. And again, everybody wants, everyone who wants education, they want the pure form, right? And so they clamor to get education. And with too many people clamoring with too much demand and not enough supply, you get, as he says, this diluted form. So it doesn't give everyone this advantage. There's no way to give everyone an advantage, right? And that's, I think, where the equality idea comes in. So anyway, the important point, I think, is that there's this internal confusion, right? And as expected, the confused uh, state or the, the internal confusion of education here leads to, one, education as an equal right, of course, defeats the success advantage, that is, the power of education. That's why it's in demand in the first place. That's why parents want their kids to get a great education. They want their kids to have an advantage, a competitive advantage in the world. They are only responsible for their own kids' success, not for the success of other people's kids. So that's why it's in demand. That's why people want it. And so, again, it dampens the ardor. It dilutes the in-demand product. Education dilutes itself, basically. And instead focuses on the veneer of education to conceal the betrayal of consumer confidence. Education tries so hard to dance at two weddings. It neither offers advantage nor equality. It simply doesn't have the capacity to solve something like inequality. And it has resigned itself of its previously pure, clear vision um, that, sure, uh, education opportunities are available to everyone, but simply not everyone takes advantage of that opportunity in the same way, um, based on individual difference. So education just focuses on the outward appearance of somehow doing both, right? Come to our school, you know, parents send your kids here because of the competitive advantage that it offers. And yet at the same time, um, you know, that as if somehow it were possible that that school is also eradicating inequality while also offering this competitive advantage only to the people who go there. So since it can't actually do both, it has to just focus on marketing because it cannot deliver the perfect and impossible product as described as a competitive advantage and as a human right. Now, Everyone needs something that offers less real value. Education shifts more and more to equality because that's the easiest thing to offer in ignorance for all. Right? That's this leveling down. This isn't a bringing everyone up equally into this leveled up society where we're all well educated. Okay? And we're seeing this in some Aries, and there are some examples of getting rid of any kind of gifted or advanced placement programs because they are advantageous to, well, not everyone, right? And any advantage for some that not everyone gets goes against equality.
And it's actually, even though education abandoned this mission because apparently it wasn't good enough, but that's still an incredibly hard thing, even just to, have, to maintain an educational system that is educating some people well, whereby the best educated people, often, I think, um, the people who are, you know, most dedicated, most studious, you might even say most hardworking, right? I think that those are by and large the people who succeed most. Now there are some, certainly some outliers that just have tremendous, you know, natural talents and intellectual gifts as well. But the easiest, the, the, it's hard enough just to elevate, you know, more and more. Like, basically, that should be maintained as the goal. Sure, um, a small number of people get all these advantages from a great education. Let's expand that as much as we can, right? Um, how much of a well-educated sort of educational elite can we possibly sustain? Um and, you know, what's the maximum education we can get for everyone while still basically maintaining a, an, an economy? But anyway, setting, setting these extremely lofty utopian-type goals, um, we come to see how easy it is to lose something that we previously thought wasn't doing enough, and now it's just not doing anything. And so, again, you wind up with the worst of all possible conclusions, which is ignorance for everyone. But at least it's still equal. It's just we're all equally ignorant, equally ill-educated. But also what happens there again is the reinforcement of a true elite who are able completely aside from the actual institutions of education are somehow able to still ensure a, you know almost like a super elite form of education okay failure then is the only success due to the paralyzing internal confusion of education like political gridlock meant to frustrate the opposition but self-inflicted. The less education educates, the more equality is achieved. So it's not education actively educating that's making everyone more equal. All education has to do to make everyone equal is to stop educating anybody. So no one gets educated, and everyone is equal in that regard. So in the end, well, in the end, the educated are bad anyway, right? It is a privilege to be well-educated, and privilege is bad. So to be well-educated is bad. So saith education. And thus endeth the lesson. <laughs>